Anyone who's lost a pet knows how difficult the days and weeks are after that death. And anyone who's gotten a puppy in the aftermath knows how exciting it can be to anticipate a new member of the family. Sandra's first dog was from a puppy mill. And when the dog died just a few years later, she decided she wanted to buy her next dog through a more reputable breeder, one with a smaller operation that took better care of the animals. Like Deborah, who fell for a romance scam after her husband's death, Sandra was in a vulnerable position. Sandra was heartbroken, and finding a new companion animal gave her hope. She wasn't expecting the family man who promised her a healthy new puppy while quoting Bible verses would also be the man responsible for another devastating heartbreak. Should have known right there, but I was vulnerable because I just lost one and my heart was broken. Yet even after Sandra spotted the scam, there was little deputies here at the Collier County Sheriff's Office could do to make things right. On this episode of Sworn Statement, we take a look at what happens after a victim reports a scam and the challenges investigators face. Sworn Statement is a podcast by the Collier County Sheriff's Office under the direction of Sheriff Kevin Rampos, exploring local cases and public safety issues, all unfolding right here in Southwest Florida. I'm your host, Christine Gill. When was the last time you read about a scammer getting locked up? If a case comes to mind, it's likely an anomaly. The truth is, online scams and frauds are increasingly difficult to investigate and prosecute as criminals become more internet savvy and as technology, such as VPNs and spoofing, make committing anonymous crimes easier than ever. The problem is threefold. First, it can be difficult, if not impossible, to track down a suspect when the crime is committed online. Second, if it's found that the suspect is located in another state, Agencies where the victims report the crimes don't have jurisdiction and will likely have to work alongside other agencies or else hand the case over completely. And finally, even if the first two problems are sorted out, deputies often have a hard time building a case when a victim parted with their money willingly. All three factors were at play in Sandra's case. I had uh, two rescue dogs and the one who uh, passed away had come from a puppy mill. And we had only had her for three years. And the, the death was very unexpected. She came down with cancer. And we didn't know she had cancer. And she lost her ability to walk in the back legs. And we had to put her down. And within 12 days, we had to put her down. And I still have one rescue dog left. But she's even older than the one we just lost. So we decided, well, we don't want to go through that again, get attached to a dog and then lose her, lose them three years later. So we decided to go for a puppy. And I'd only lost her two days when I started looking online. I mean, I, I would look for rescue dogs online and then go to the shelter and see the dog, you know, to see if I wanted it. But but it's very difficult to get a puppy. I was looking for a toy poodle or something with poodle in it because our last five dogs have been poodles and they're very smart and don't smell. She found what she believed was a reputable breeder based in Montana. They had pictures of a family and they just did this for, um, because they love dogs and they had pictures with the kids and everything. And and they had a picture of a puppy that I thought was really cute. And so I filled out the information at the bottom. 
and then that's when they contacted me. The breeder Sandra chose had the word faith in its name, and that Christian bent was the final push she needed to trust the family selling her that little white fluff ball. The breeders wrote back after Sandra emailed them to express her interest. They asked a series of questions, and at one point told her, I just want to make sure that one of our puppies is getting into the right home. Trust me, the breeder said. They are spoiled rotten by the time you get them. Sandra answered the breeder's questions, telling them about where she lived, the vet clinic where she planned to take the dogs, and all about the last five animals that she cared for. The seller promised a health certificate, a crate, toys, and some food for the first few days the puppy was in its new home. Sandra told the breeder that she wanted the white puppy. She planned to name it Inez and agreed to pay $650 for the dog itself and $150 for the shipping costs to Naples, Florida. Then she sent a few questions of her own. Sandra wanted to see photos of the puppy's parents, and she was curious about how payment and shipping worked. At first, the breeders were responsive. Inez would weigh 5 to 6 pounds, full-grown. She was very healthy, they insisted, and the shipping process was safe. A nanny would fly alongside the dog aboard one of a handful of approved airlines, then be driven directly to Sandra's doorstep at no additional charge. The breeder suggested Sandra pay by Google Pay, Zelle, Apple Pay, or Cash App. Sandra replied again, this time with more questions about Inez. How much did she currently weigh? Did she respond to her name? Was she potty trained? Again, could Sandra please see photos of the puppy's parents? Sandra had never used the apps the breeder suggested for payment, and she wanted to see about paying a deposit, followed by the remaining balance, once Inez was delivered. The breeder's replies were shorter this time. Inez was currently 2.6 pounds, they said, and she already knew her name. Full payment was required up front, and Sandra could use Amex. Sandra said she would try Google Pay. The breeder countered, how about Zelle? It was easier. I'll try, Sandra wrote. The breeder sent instructions, but Sandra balked. We never use debit payments, so this is scary to me, she wrote. Please do not be scared, the breeder said. Everything will be fine, I promise. Send me a screenshot once you make the payment. Then things took a turn. Sandra was insistent. She asked a third time to see photos of the dog's parents. Would really appreciate it, she wrote. I was under the assumption you owned the parent dogs. Sandra also reiterated her hesitancy about a money transfer. The breeder had had enough. They got a little pushy at the end. I understand that you are trying to be skeptical, the breeder wrote, but I assure you that this is not what you think, okay? I am a full flesh Christian that won't stood as low as to fraud people. The poor grammar and the guilt trip kind of irks Sandra, but not so much that she didn't still want the dog. I'm a born-again Christian, too, and I want to give Inez a loving home, she replied. She would try the debit transfer one more time. When it finally went through, Sandra messaged the breeder. This time, he slipped up, sending Sandra a single sentence that he later claimed was intended for another recipient. The message said, African countries that are suffering. Something clicked in Sandra's mind. Please tell me that you didn't crush my heart, she wrote. I should have stayed with my initial skepticism. May God change your unethical ways and bring you to Christ. I'll pray for you, whoever you are. Behind the scenes, Sandra was scrambling. You know, I still had a gut feeling. I I actually picked up my phone in the middle of the night to see if there was any more emails back from them after I transferred the money. 
I mean, so I really had a gut feeling that maybe I was taken. And then when I saw that email about the African uh, countries are, are suffering, I immediately, Monday morning, first thing, 8 o'clock, I called Bank of America. And then they told me to report it to um, FTC.gov, which I did, and file a police report, which I did. And um, But I heard back from the bank that they... They couldn't do anything. In the meantime, Sandra ceased communication with the breeder, and Inez, who at this point was fully paid for, never arrived. They gave me a guilt trip um, about um, being Christian. Um, it was poor English. And then they used these biblical phrases, because I am a Christian, and it was poor English, and they used biblical phrases due to others that I would want to do to me, and, and they tried to get my trust. And I think that's when I, I um, gave in. Sandra filed a report with the Collier County Sheriff's Office and forwarded her email thread with the breeder. The case hasn't been solved. Here's Lieutenant Chad Parker with the agency's Financial Crimes Bureau. You can, uh, there's apps that you can have text numbers um, and you're not emailing or anything and, and trying to identify who is subscribed to that text number is, is virtually impossible. Um, and if you do find out, like I said, they're oftentimes in another country, which we don't have jurisdiction to do anything about it. Email addresses, now you can set up email accounts with fake information. I could put John Doe and create a Gmail account, and all the information that I've put in is fraudulent, but I've, I have a genuine email account for me to commit fraud and, and avoid detection. Um, maybe their credit card was used in the state of Michigan, say Lansing, Michigan, our, really our recourses to forward our report to the Lansing Police Department or whatever county sheriff's department that is up there in hopes that they, they pursue the, the leads in the case. Because if it was a credit card used or, or some of their identity used, there might be video of a suspect up in that area where the crime was committed. So flip the switch on that, we'll get reports from other parts of the country uh, where a victim said that their identity or their credit card checks or what have you were used in Naples, Florida. So um, we do actively pursue those cases um, as long as we can get them in a reasonable amount of time and pursue any, any leads that might be available to us. I could live here in Naples, but if my credit card was used in Los Angeles, California, uh, no law enforcement agency has the, the budget to send detectives all over the country to pursue the leads. So our only recourse is to forward it to the Los Angeles Police Department in this case, see if they have any video any witnesses, any, any leads that any investigation um, might, might um, reveal and see if they can make an identification of the person and then possibly make an arrest in that. With poor English skills like the one Sandra observed, it's likely the scammer she was dealing with wasn't anywhere near Montana, let alone the United States. And almost always these criminals are outside of our jurisdiction or most likely, even more so outside the country. Investigators are still working on Sandra's case. This spring, they filed subpoenas for the transactions to the bank the scammer used. So far, though, she hasn't gotten her money back. I mean, I'm hopeful, but I probably won't get the money back, probably. But I can hope. Still, Sandra had her happy ending. They have a new puppy named Marley. This time I went online and I I went to AKC and looked for Florida AKC breeders. And I found one over in Fort Lauderdale. And um, that's where we got a puppy. And, and there was about the only one available nearby. <laughs> so uh, we did finally get a puppy. 
In 2020, Lieutenant Parker likes to say that the agency got lucky when deputies made arrests in two scam cases. I can't remember in the last five or six years that we had any of those arrests, let alone two in one year. The first was for a man here in Naples who scammed a woman living in Michigan through the grandparent scam. So the grandson scam is, uh, a lot of these you'll see, you hear the, the premise is the same, is to get you to send funds via Western Union MoneyGram or an app, or, or in this case, I think it was a Walmart money-to-money transfer. They'll call the victim and say, hey, this, hey, Grandma, it's Tommy. I'm in a little trouble, or I, you know, I, I need some money for college, but please don't tell Dad. Um, he'll kill me or something along those lines. You know, and the grandmother will be like, oh, sure thing, Tommy. What, you know, how much do you need? Uh, $2,000 will cover tuition. I, I greatly appreciate it. And please don't tell Dad, you know. And then the grandma might say, um, hey, your voice sounds a little different. Is some, you know, oh, it's a bad phone connection. They're quick. They, they, they have a rehearsed answer to the possibilities. You know, bad connection or I have a cold. Um, okay, what do you need me to do? I'll just go to your local Walmart and send the money to... Um, you know, put it in my friend's name. Uh, he's going to pick it up for me because I'm at work and he, you know, he knows me or something along those lines. Okay, no problem. That's exactly what happened to the woman in Michigan we'll call Betsy. Betsy got a call one day from her grandson, Connor. He was talking fast, but he needed $6,000. Connor was down in Florida and he was in trouble. Something about a DUI. Betsy was at a loss. She told Connor that she didn't have $6,000. She was sorry and he hung up. A moment later, though, he called back. This is Betsy's daughter, Charlotte, explaining the second call. And he, when he called back, he asked her, well, how much do you have? And she, and she said, well, I have 500 here at the house. And he said, well, that, that'll help. And I thought, you know, the gall of calling back and saying, well, how much do you have? Betsy agreed to send the money and Connor gave her directions for wiring it to a friend of his who would pick it up from the Walmart in Naples. Two days went by before Betsy couldn't stand it anymore. She was worried about Connor, so against his wishes, she dialed her daughter Charlotte. When Betsy's daughter picked up, she knew immediately that her mother had been scammed. She was swore up and down that it was her grandson. Sounded just like him, you know, and everything, and it, it took some convincing to to her to let her know, no, mom, it wasn't him, you know. And so it was, um, it was heartbreaking. It, it could have been a lot more money um, like he wanted in the first place. But, you know, the thing is, my mother didn't take a minute to think. Um, my son doesn't have a car, so he wasn't driving and got a DUI or whatever this person said. So that was the first flag. Why is he in Florida? He has a job here, you know, a good job. So I think the big thing is, you know, at her age, she didn't take a moment and stop and think it out. She just went on her heartstrings and I have to go, you know, I have to help my grandson. Charlotte listened to her mother, then did some digging. I got the receipt in that and it actually has the person's name on the Walmart receipt. So then I didn't know what Western Union it was, just knew it was in Florida. So I took upon myself to actually call the Western Union company in in California and ask them, this is a store number for a Walmart. Can you tell me where it's located? And she did. She told me it was in Naples. 
So that's how I got where it happened. I had all my information, what store in Naples, where it was located that I got from Western Union, the person's name, the time, and everything. And that's when the detective said, you know, we will pull the um, footage. Lieutenant Parker picked things up from there. So we got the case, um, and of course we had the name, and then we looked at the video and looked at his booking sheet. The man, a known felon who was homeless at the time, was arrested a few months later. Charlotte credits her savviness to television dramas like CSI. She told the deputy she was a fan of the show when she called to explain the sleuthing she'd done on her mother's behalf. (laughs) I just, you know, there was nothing else I could do to get her money back. You know, it was out of my hands. I was helpless there. But I just knew, you know, this happening to my mother, I was going to just do everything I could to try to bring, you know, this person, you know, make him responsible for his actions. Charlotte's son, the real Connor, had a different idea. In his 20s, you know, he's like, well, you know, uh, let's go to Florida and find this guy. I'm like, no, it don't work that way. The second time the agency got lucky last year was when a local banker noticed two Jamaican nationals depositing large sums of money into their accounts from all over the country. No victims had conformed in the case at that time, but it's possible none of them had realized yet that they'd been scammed. The two men had been working at country clubs on their work visas, but they had also been scamming people on the side since January of 2020. Michelle Caverman is the fraud investigator with First Integrity Bank, who first noticed suspicious activity on the two accounts in May of 2020. And somebody was sending, going to start sending social security payments to this particular account. And there were two of them. So we looked at them and the the tax IDs didn't match. We Googled the people and that was not our customer. That happened and then the next day it happened again with another Jamaican. And we're like, what is going on here? And so as I started to look, I'm looking and I'm seeing these checks coming from all over the United States and it just started recently. And I can also see we started to Google where there were, you know, the, the way the funds were going out and they were going out by cash apps and Venmo and all of that. And they also had like burner cells. There's a, um, a cell provider that they use for that. And we saw that and it was always changing. So I'm, I'm getting nervous because I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, we don't want our name attached to being, you know, taking funds and losing money. And so we start to look, and that's when I contacted the detective. We all start making calls and finding out, and sure enough, they, um, it turned out that it was um, a Jamaican scam. The two men had been convincing random individuals across the country that they had won the lottery. In order to receive their winnings, the victims would have to provide their banking information. In some cases, the scammers convinced the victims that they would need to pay a small fee in order to have their winnings transferred. Michelle was thrilled to help with the case, one of the few which has led to arrests in her line of work. About six days after she first reported the suspicious activity, deputies were able to arrest the two individuals responsible. And we were able to get one little old lady her money back 
some of the people we couldn't um, because they would send it out so quickly. One of the biggest frustrations in Michelle's line of work is knowing when and how to intervene when a customer is making a move with their money. Michelle can watch transactions and flag suspicious ones, but it can be difficult to convince a customer that they're a victim. Truly in banking, you want to get to know your customer. And you may know, you know, Mrs. Jones, and she may be elderly and alone. And, you know, you start asking her questions because then you notice she's cashing in CDs um, and sending that. So then you start to question her and you start to talk to them. You know, we sit down delicately, we talk to them, you know, we say, you know, we notice that you have a lot of a pattern here going on with wires going out. Um, can you tell us what it's about and why? And you tend to see and you know, you know your customer and you know the trends and you know that what you're looking at is not normal. It's fraudulent. In the beginning, sometimes when they're resistant and, and they just don't... It, They don't want to listen to the fact that you know it's fraud. Michelle said in her experience, the elderly are more receptive to intervention from a banker, but also more likely to fall for a scam in the first place. Crime prevention specialist Sergeant Brian Sawyer says it's because the older generation is more respectful of authority. It's why scams like the jury duty scam are often successful. A lot of emails, a lot of phone calls, whatever it is, they're going to try to cater something that may be more towards the elderly. So you may see something jury duty wise. If I called you up and said, hey, you've got a warrant for armed robbery, you need to pay a fine or whatever, you're just going to hang up the phone. But it's easy for a normal person to think, hey, I may have missed jury duty. So that's why those scams were so successful to begin with. The IRS, same thing. Anyone can have an issue with their taxes, so that vulnerable population is there, and they're a lot more trusting than younger people are. Angela Larson with Victim Services agrees. The generational thing, too, is, you know, you don't want to be rude and just hang up on somebody. Oh, be rude. Hang up on them. It's okay. (laughs) The case was also lucky because while the criminals were from Jamaica, they were living in Naples at the time of the crimes and still here by the time deputies were able to make an arrest. We had to hurry up and get as much documentation as we could to establish probable cause to make the arrest on these individuals before they they flew back to Jamaica and would be uh, probably get away with it. Michelle says the best advice she has when it comes to banking crimes is to avoid becoming a victim in the first place. Look at your account every day. Look at the alerts. And if you get an unsolicited phone call from someone pretending to be with your bank, hang up and call your bank directly. No bank will ever do that. They'll never reach out to you and say, well, in order for us to do that, I need your social security number. Um, You need to contact us. You know, it'd be best for you to contact us right away. Tell us what happened. We can put freezes on the accounts, um, on your debit cards, on your accounts. We can put all kinds of messages out there so that nothing gets out to anyone but the customer. In the next episode of Sworn Statement, we'll talk about the work our agency does to curb the number of victims we see locally. We've done so many presentations. We've just like done a blitz for the last, geez, four years or so on just education. I mean, it's one thing, you know, speaking with Sheriff Rambos is, you know, how can we, how can we prevent this? And we said, really, it's just through education. So we just did a full blitz. Sworn Statement is a podcast by the Collier County Sheriff's Office under the direction of Sheriff Kevin Rambosk. It is produced, written, and recorded by me, your host, Christine Gill. Listen on SoundCloud and wherever you find podcasts.